Today's scripture comes from Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect, gifts of grace. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. Good to see all of you, even though on this dreary, cold, rainy day. Glad that you made it out here and that you felt uh, God compelling you to come out. So encouraged and so blessed to have every single one of you here. So without further ado, let's bow our heads and ask for the Lord to bless our time. Beloved Lord, we come to you now asking for you to now speak to your people. We have answered the summons that you have called to us by name to gather together in this place to become the people of God, to live out our identity as children of God. Lord, we have lived these past six days, gone through much, some great sorrow, great bitterness, some with great elation and hopefulness. But Lord, we are all gathered here for one purpose, which is to be known by you and to know you even more. Father, we pray that you would bless our time together and that you would bless this message in spite of the messenger who brings it. For we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. You know, not too long ago, the celebrity Chris Pratt, the star of the Guardians of the Galaxy movies and the various Marvel movie collections that they have done together, was on uh, Stephen Colbert's show, The Late Night Show on CBS. And at one point in the interview, he was marveling and he he was just gushing over the church that he belongs to the church that he loves so much and no no it wasn't ncf it was a good educated guest though it wasn't ncf but it was hillsong in manhattan he just started talking about how much he loved the church how much the church has blessed him you know and, and it was such a very positive and uplifting interview the very next day another celebrity by the name of ellen page tweeted in response in reaction to his jubilation over his Christian faith. And this is what Ellen Page wrote. Uh, okay, um, but his church is infamously anti-LGBTQ, so maybe address that too. Whoa. <laughs> and then, the very next day, she sent out the following tweet. If you are a famous actor and you belong to an organization that hates a certain group of people, don't be surprised if someone simply wonders why it's not addressed. Being anti-LGBTQ is wrong. There aren't two sides. The damage it causes is severe. Full stop. Sending love to all. That's it. A few days later, the very well-known uh, newspaper by the name of the Daily Beast came out with a follow-up article in response to Page's tweet with the title, Thank you, Ellen Page, for your powerful and glorious queer 
rage. At one point in the article, it said this, quote, Hillsong may look a lot hipper than your average evangelical church, and a big-name Hollywood actor might go to its services, but that doesn't mean that it is functionally any different from other organizations which regards homosexuality as immoral. As Paige might say, connect the dots. What Paige intimately understands, the position from which she refuses to back down, is that there is no moral way to be against LGBT people being LGBT. There is no other side, end quote. So there you have it. A very prominent and growing powerful group within our culture today has labeled the church, evangelical church, which we happen to be one of, as being bigoted, as being hateful, as being unwelcoming, and here it is, as being uninclusive, non-inclusive, not welcoming. And it's through that conclusion, if you're visiting us today, that you might be truly confused when you first encounter our vision statement, our vision. If you're unfamiliar of what that might be, here it is. NCF exists to bring hope to our broken world through men and women who grow up in the gospel by courageously display their allegiance to Jesus through their priorities, family, and work life, and their compassion to the poor, selflessly invest in personal relationships in order to share the gospel within their various social networks, which we call oikos, and confidently engage culture with biblical wisdom in order to promote an inclusive community that flourishes Queens, New York City, the world, and the next generation. This is our vision. This is the statement of which what we feel we are all about and what we are trying to live towards. And today, as we come to an end of our vision series, we're focusing on that third sub-point, that whole idea of becoming an inclusive community, which again might be the source of your confusion, maybe even contention. Because how in the world could an evangelical church like ours ever dare to say that we are an inclusive community when it just seems that there is consensus across the board outside of the walls of the church that we are the exact opposite? How could we ever be justified in our rationale into claiming that we aspire to be and that we're trying to be an inclusive community? Well, that's the question the Apostle Paul is going to answer for us as we take a look at this very well-known passage in Romans chapter 12. Because here, Apostle Paul is going to give us three specific reasons why, according to him, and really according to all the scriptures, that we Christians could have confidence and therefore conviction to say, yes, indeed, we are part of a community that is truly inclusive. In fact, Paul will even give us further license to say, not only are we an inclusive community, but we are truly the only genuine inclusive community that there is, period. Whoa, pretty daring to say. How can that be, Paul? Well, he would say it this way. How can we be confident, Christian, that we are part of an inclusive community? Three reasons. Reason number one, three points, we have encountered mercy. Reason number two, we are teachable. And finally, reason number three, we all have a place to contribute. The three reasons, according to Paul, why you, Christian, can say that you are part of an inclusive community known as the church is because of these three reasons. We've encountered mercy, we are teachable, and we have all a place to contribute. Let's begin with the first reason. First, we have encountered mercy. Read again with me verse 1 of our passage where Paul writes the following. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, there is a lot that we can spend a lot of time on because just in that one verse, Paul says a ton of things evidenced by the fact that if you look at any standard commentary on the book of Romans and you zero in on this verse, Scholars will have pages upon pages of commentary to write. But given that we don't have enough time, let's just zero in on that last phrase that ends this verse. The phrase spiritual worship. 
Spiritual worship. If you have a pen or a highlighter, you might want to underline it. Why? Why should we focus on it? Well, for lack of a better word, it's a weird statement. (laughs) And when I say weird, I don't mean that in a very flattering way. Because if you have a person who's not a believer and not a big fan of Christianity read the statement of Paul, they may be tempted to think that Paul was an absolute idiot for saying such a statement. (laughs) Of course, I would never say such a thing, but they would probably say so. Why is that? Because the phrase spiritual worship sounds like a very unnecessary, redundant, and therefore idiotic statement to make. That's like saying that someone is, you know, famishly hungry or or someone is fatally dead. It's like, uh, hello, if you're hungry, you're famished. If you're dead, you're fatal. Why go out of your way to make such an unnecessary, redundant phrase, almost as if you don't know what you're talking about, idiot, right? Why is Paul using this phrase, spiritual worship? Well, assuming that he isn't an idiot, and I don't think that he is, perhaps Paul is trying to teach us something that maybe we don't know too often. And that is not all worship is spiritual. Not all worship is spiritual. You see, by making this statement, Paul is trying to bring to our awareness the fact that for some people who worship, their act is not a spiritual thing. Because, of course, we say, oh, worship, duh, it is inherently spiritual. Not necessarily. And, in fact, if you ever read through the Bible, you will come to discover that's absolutely true. Do you know what the most pervasive sin in the Bible is? Do you know what the most pervasive sin in the Bible is? It's idolatry. Idolatry. And if you've been coming to NCF for a while, you should be familiar with that word because we talk about it all the time. Idolatry, where you worship something or someone as God when in fact it isn't God at all. What am I talking about? I'm talking about an idol. And no, I don't mean those cute, shiny little statues that you see in nice, fancy, or takeout restaurants in the city, right? Chinese, Thai, whatever. No, I'm talking about something more relevant, more immediate to your life. Listen. You can make anything in this world into an idol. And when I say anything, I literally mean anything. You can make anything in this world a false god. Consider how Pastor Tim Keller puts it in his book, The Reason for God. Quote, an idol is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. An idol has such a controlling position in your heart that you can spend most of your passion and energy, your emotional and financial resources on it without a second thought. It can be family and children or career and making money or achievement and critical acclaim or saving face and social standing. It can be a romantic relationship, peer approval, competence and skill, security and comfortable circumstances, your beauty or your brains, a great political or social cause, your morality and virtue. End quote. Now notice how Keller describes an idol. It can be a wide variety of different things. But don't let all that diversity blind you to the common element that all idols share. And you know what that common element is? It's your body. The human body. The human body, yes, the human body. Whether you're talking about the physical appearance of the human physique, the mental creativity of the human brain, the physical and intellectual labor of human productivity, the reproductive capabilities that produce human babies, or the emotions that originate in your hormones that create human connections and human relationships. Every possible idol man worships 
originates from some source from man's various capabilities that come out of his mental, emotional, and physical body. Consider what the prophet Isaiah says in the 44th chapter of the book that bears his name, starting in verse 13. He says, one works with wood, he marks it and draws it with a red marker. He makes it smooth and makes it like man, like the beauty of a man, so that it may sin the house. He cuts down cedar trees and takes a cypress or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees. He plants a fir tree and the rain makes it grow. Then it becomes something for a man to burn. So he takes one of them and warms himself. He takes a fire to bake bread. He also makes a god and worships it he makes an object of worship and bows down in front of it he burns half of it in the fire over this half he eats meat and he makes it ready and is filled he also warns himself and says oh i am warm i see the fire but he makes the rest of it into a god his object of worship he bows down in front of it and worship he prays to it and says bring me out of this trouble for you are my god the underlying reason according to the bible Why idolatry is so problematic is because mankind is obsessed in trying to control God. Let me say that again. The reason why idolatry is such a pervasive problem, according to the Bible, is because mankind is so obsessed in trying to control God because it's assumed if you create something, you have control over it. Haven't you ever heard of creative rights? Hmm? Artists have rights over their music. Sculptures have right over their art form. Scholars have rights over their intelligence. If you can create it, you control it, you see. If you can create it with your emotions, with your ingenuity, with your looks, you control it. Here's the question. What does that say about the dynamic between you and your God? And what I mean by that is, if the God you worship, instead of controlling you, You control the God you worship. Who really is the God in that relationship? If the God you worship isn't the one that you can, isn't the one that controls you, but rather the one you control, you dictate, you determine. Who really is the God in that dynamic? Hold on to that thought. Excuse me. Hold on to that thought as I read to you again, verse one of our passage Paul again says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, that is interesting. Notice also how Paul refers to the human body. And what does he say we're to do with the human body? We're to make it what? A living sacrifice. A living sacrifice. What in the world does he mean by that statement? Well, you should know because I already told you the answer. See if you can find it as I read it one more time. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. There it is again. Spiritual worship. To present your bodies as a living sacrifice is the equivalent of spiritual worship. And if spiritual worship is the exact opposite of false worship, i.e. idolatry, spiritual worship therefore means what? True worship. It's genuine, real, authentic worship and according to verse one the primary way that you begin true worship is what what does paul say is the first prerequisite you need in order to offer to god true worship by the mercies of god by the mercies of god the mercies of god when someone receives mercy what does that say about that person when a person is receiving mercy from somebody else 
What is that person tacitly acknowledging about themselves by receiving this mercy, by recognizing they need mercy? Doesn't it say that they are not perfect? Doesn't it say that they're not flawless? Doesn't it say they're not God? God, by definition, is perfect. He's flawless. He doesn't need mercy from anybody. He never fails. He never messes up to where he would ever, therefore, need to appeal for mercy from anybody. But when Paul says the beginning of true worship is when you first receive mercy, what is he saying? The pathway to true worship is when you sacrifice, when you give up your attempt to control God because you acknowledge you are not God. That's what it means to be a living sacrifice. It's giving up the pathetic and delusional attempt to thinking you control the God that you worship. That is where true worship begins. When you first encounter mercy, and by the way, that's when you first become initiated into the community of God known as the church. Now, practically, what does all this mean? It means this. The reason why the church is truly inclusive is because it is inviting to anyone and everyone who acknowledges that they are not divine. The church is inclusive because it is willing to invite anyone and everyone who recognizes and accepts they are not God. Which means the people who will not feel like they belong here, the people who will feel uncomfortable, the people who will not feel welcomed, are people who think that they are inherently superior to everybody else. Are people who think they are more important than everyone else. People who think they're more entitled than everyone else. In other words, people with God complexes will look at the church, participate in the community church, and be like, people are so unwelcoming here. People are so uninviting. They're so messed up. They're so unkind. They don't accept me for who I am. No, that's not true. They're not accepting you for what you are not. You're not God. If you come into this community thinking you're all high and mighty and you're superior and therefore you're entitled and that you can pass judgment and do all this, this is going to feel like a foreign place. But conversely, if you're a person who feels insignificant, who feels invisible, who feels inferior, who feels that you have issues because you know you have brokenness, you have flaws, you have sins, and that you desperately need the mercy of God, this is going to be your home. This is where you're going to feel like, finally at last, I found the safest place on earth. Desperately trying to find it, can't find it anywhere else, but for some reason, I find it here. The first reason, Paul says, why the church is truly and genuinely inclusive is that it's willing to invite anyone and everyone who will recognize and accept that they are not God, but in fact, people who desperately need mercy. That's the first reason. Let's move on to the second reason why Paul says the church is inclusive. We are teachable. Read again with me verse 2 where Paul writes, Do not can be formed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by the testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Come on back. After making sure that Paul teaches us that we are in God, he then goes on to say the effects of what happens to you when you realize and accept you're not God. What happens? Your mind gets renewed. Now, what in the world does that mean? What does it mean to have a renewed mind? Well, if you just look at the word renewed, which literally means new again, right? And you add it to mind, then 
literally Paul is saying, one of the ways that you realize that you are a true Christian, that you've accepted the mercy of God, acknowledging you're not God, is that your mind is made new again. How in the world can your mind be made new? Given that the mind that you have now and the mind that you're going to die with is the very same mind that you were born with. How can you get a new mind? The answer, he's not being literal. He's being figurative. And what does he mean? A renewed mind means it's a mind that's always willing to learn new things. New things. You know, when I was in college, I was really annoyed about something. You know what I was annoyed by? I was annoyed that every semester I had to buy brand new textbooks. Brand new textbooks. Maybe some of you college students can be like, amen. I couldn't purchase last semester's or last year's textbooks, even though they were in perfectly good condition. You know why? The new edition came out. You got to buy the new edition. Professor demands that you buy the newest edition because it's so different. The cover has changed. So you got to buy it, right? Now, I was convinced uh, back then that there was some conspiracy with the university bookstore and these academic publishers that were trying to just suck out every dollar that I had in my little bank account. And it's true. They were. It's true. College students protest. (laughs) But before you, like, don't do that. Because on the other flip side of it is, What also is true is that textbooks do go out of date. Textbooks go out of date. And the reason why textbooks go out of date is because knowledge gets out of date, right? What we know now is different to what we know back then. New research is done. New discoveries are made. And hence, new knowledge is added that either adds to or even corrects the previous knowledge that we've had before. And you know what that means practically? It means that if this whole pastor gig doesn't work out and I desperately attempt to live out my high school dream of being a cardiac surgeon, right? You know what I'm going to have to do? I have to go back to college. I have to relearn and take classes that I took when I was a college student. Even though I currently possess a bachelor's of science in biology with a minor in chemistry with a cumulative GPA of 3.89, Phi Beta Kappa, no boasting here, right? No medical school in their right mind will accept me. You know why? Because I graduated in 1999, right? I graduated college in 19, before Y2K happened, folks. All the young people are like, what's Y2K? Right? I graduated college, which means the knowledge that I have is insufficient. I am not adequately prepared. I don't know what I need to know in order to succeed in medical school today. You know what? That's not just true of getting into professional school. That's also true when it comes to living life. It's true when it comes to living life as well. Okay? Here's the truth of the matter. No one, and I mean no one, knows everything. And the group of people who should know this the most is this Christian. Us Christians. We are the first people who should admit. We don't know everything there is to know. Right? And the reason why is because of what I said in my first point. We've received mercy. We're not God. We're not all-knowing. How can we possibly claim we know everything when when we're not God? We Christians should be the very first to admit that we need to keep an open mind, that we need to be willing to hear other perspectives, that we are willing to be corrected and changed in our thinking if we're ever confronted with the truth, because how could we ever possibly know it, right? This is just the inevitable result of what happens when you no longer think of yourself as the all-knowing one. You become what? Teachable. You develop a teachable spirit. Any Christian who calls themselves a Christian, 
who is very high-strung in their opinions, so stubborn and so unmovable in their perspective, could possibly indicating that maybe they don't have true faith working in them. Because according to Paul, the mark of a genuine person who's received the mercies of God and has been humbled by the fact they aren't God is what? I don't possibly know everything there is to know. I need to be humble. I need to have a teachable attitude. I need to always have my mind open for renewing, to be made new yet again. But with that said, that does beg the question. If we are to have a teachable heart, if we're to keep an open mind, who exactly are we to be teachable towards? Because think about it. Christians aren't the only ones who don't know everything. Everyone else doesn't know everything either, right? No one could ever claim that they're all-knowing. No one could ever say, hey, you need to listen to me because I know. I know everything. No, you don't. Which means what some people will say is true may not be true, and what some people will say is false. Like, hey, what you believe in your Christian faith, that's false. may not be false at all. You see the conundrum? So here's the question. If we as Christians are to be teachable, who exactly are we to be teachable towards? Paul indirectly tells us in verse 2, Listen to what he says. That you may discern the will of God. God. Makes sense, doesn't it? The one person we should always be completely submissive to is God who truly, literally knows everything about everything. God knows everything. And according to Paul, the way you come to know this God who knows everything is by knowing his will. You need to have a teachable heart to where you're always open and trying to understand what the will of God is. How do you do that practically? How do you practically know God's will? Pastor John Piper, reflecting on this very verse, said this, quote, The will of command is revealed in the Bible, decisively, authoritatively, infallibly. If you want to do discernment of what the will of God is, you start here. It's the Bible. The source for the Christian of complete submission, complete, humble, teachable attitude is towards the Bible. Christian, the Bible is not a suggestion book. It is not merely a guidebook. It is the word of God. And you are to fully submit your whole heart, your whole mind to what it says because the word of God contains the will of God. Now I know. Some of you are squirming. You're uncomfortable, even though you know you shouldn't at a place like this. Because let's be honest, you live in a culture that really is skeptical, maybe even highly critical about what the Bible says. The Bible, our culture says, it's like any other primitive book written by other crazy primitive people. It's no more authoritative than the the, the Bhagavad Gita, the Quran, any of that stuff, right? And I know many of you will probably never admit to say that I agree with that, but maybe you would admit that it does some cast doubts. It does cast some doubts, excuse me. Is the Bible really as authoritative as it claims to be to where we should just fully submit to what it says? If that's where you're at, I'd like to introduce you to Tom Holland. And no, not the British actor who played Spider-Man in the Marvel movies, the other Tom Holland, also a Brit, Oxford-trained, world-renowned historian, Right? who also happens to be an atheist, recently wrote a book called Rubicon. 
talking about ancient Greek culture. And in an interview regarding this book, he said this. And remember, this man is an atheist. Oops, sorry. He said this, quote, in almost every way, I realized I am Christian. I began to realize that Paul, though in many ways he seemed less familiar as Cicero in his small amount of writing, was almost everything that explains the modern world. The way the West has moved on to shape concepts like international law, of in law, for instance, the concept of human rights, these ultimately don't go back to Greek philosophers or Roman empiricism. They go back to Paul. His letters, along with the four Gospels, are the most influential, the most impactful, the most revolutionary writings that have emerged from the ancient world. Paul's writings are like a depth charge whose rippling effects set up revolutions throughout Western history. It's spilled out so much that now we don't even realize where these rippling effects are coming from. We just take them for granted. End quote. Wow. Again, this is not a devout Christian speaking. This is not even a Christian at all. Merely a man who has been trained in the historical sciences and from his objective analysis, without any sort of spiritual prompting whatsoever, he has come to the historical conclusion that no other book that has impacted Western culture and really, which is really global culture because Western culture has dominated the world now, right? The Bible is the biggest reason for why the West has been able to thrive the way that it has. I don't know about you, but when I consider what I'm going to submit my life to, what I'm going to be open to, open-minded towards in terms of what it says and how I should live, I think I'm going to go with a book that actually changed the world for the better rather than any other book or any other person or ideology that has claimed otherwise but has yet not proven themselves the way Scripture has throughout history. See, that's the second thing. That's the second thing that Paul says, that we know that we are an inclusive community because the people who make up the community, we are teachables people. We are not know-it-alls. We are not puffed up, prompting ourselves into thinking that we know everything, being closed-minded, everything else. No, we are open-minded people because we acknowledge we are not know-it-alls. We are not capable of knowing it all because we are not God. Now, we move on to the final reason <coughs> to why we are an inclusive community. And here we finish the remainder of the verses, verses 3 to 8. Paul writes, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, in the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Come on back. Paul gives a final reason why the church is truly inclusive, and that is every member has a place to serve. Every member has a place to serve. You know, when you first read this massive list of various needs and gifts and ministries that he lists out it's very tempting to interpret this as wow the church is such a hot mess look at all of its needs and all the ministries that's required in order to get it functioning no 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 <coughs> excuse me remember the context remember what paul is doing he's trying to show why the church community is truly inclusive the reason why he's so exhaustive in writing out the various ministries is because he's simply trying to make the point every member has a unique 
and valuable contribution make contribution to make to the body of Christ, to the community. That's why he's so exhaustive here. He's saying every single one of you sitting in these chairs across the hall, every single one of you individually has something unique to offer and something very valuable, irreplaceable, unrepeatable. This is why he says what he does in verse 3. Where he says, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. You know why he says that? Because he knows it's very tempting to where when you realize that you offer something valuable and unique that no one else can do, it can get to your head. You can be like, look at me, right? I'm so irreplaceable, right? If you think that way, you're going to hear that Beyonce song pretty soon, right? Right? You think you're irreplaceable? Wait, is that how it goes? You know how it goes, right? You have to get to your head. And if it does, you got to remember what he says in verse 1. By the mercies of God, by the mercies of God, I ain't God. I'm not truly irreplaceable. Now, with that said, however, we do need to keep pressing forward with what Paul is saying. He is saying, look, Christian, every single one of you has a valuable, unique, unrepeatable contribution to make that no one else can do. Because here's the thing. If you are a Christian, you are gifted. The moment you became saved was the moment you became equipped with gifts, with ministry. Okay? That is what Paul is saying. Okay? You have been gifted with spiritual gift. Gifts, excuse me. Now, please, please, if you're doing this right now, stop. And that is, if you're hearing me talk about all the spiritual gift, if your brain is thinking, I wonder what spiritual gift I have. Do I have hospitality? Do I have leadership? Do I have prophecy? Do I have tongues? If you think you have tongues, come talk to me after service. But, you know, do I have this? Do I have that? Don't go there. You know why? Because you're getting distracted. You're going on a rabbit trail. Remember the point. Paul is simply making the main, main point that you, as a member of this community, has something uniquely to contribute. Right? And it's because of that that we truly are inclusive. Because think about it. If you are someone who can do what no one else can do, right? But conversely, if there are things other people can do in this community that you can't do, what is missing in that dynamic? You know what's missing? Envy, competition, insecurity, where you don't feel threatened, right? You don't think, oh my goodness, this person has a better voice than me, can sing better than me, oh, and you get all competitive. It's like, oh my goodness, that pastor can speak better than Pastor John. We should go to his church. Ugh. I, I don't feel that way. I seriously don't. That's why I only invite speakers who live out in California where you could possibly go. <laughs> or New Jersey. Well, some of you guys live in New Jersey, but all right, no more, no more speakers from Jersey, guys. Okay? But you know my point? He gets also competitive, also insecure, all compare, all compete. But when you really buy into what Paul is saying, that every single one of you has a unique contribution that only you can do, but conversely, that's also true for everyone else. Now you have a community where there's no threats, there's no insecurity, there's no envy, there's no competition, and now there's what? Unity. There's a welcoming spirit. Come, be a part of us. You're no threat to me. I'm no threat to you. We can truly be an inclusive do you see it? So there it is. The three reasons, according to Paul, why the church is not only one of an inclusive community amongst many, but truly the genuine and only inclusive community. Number one, we are not God because we receive mercy. 
Number two, we don't know everything, and hence we need to be teachable and submissive to God's word. Number three, there is a place for everyone here to make an active contribution. Before I move on, let me linger a little bit on the third reason. One practical way that you can figure out <clears throat> how you can contribute to building up of this body is not necessarily trying to figure out what your spiritual gift is. I know I'm a little bit guilty as your pastor of making you fill out these spiritual gift inventories, but now I've come to the point where I've felt, where I feel, that the best way for you to figure out of how you can figure out how you can contribute is to not fixate on gifts, but figure out what unique contribution can I make based on who I am. And one practical thing that you can do to figure that out is ask yourself a series of categorical questions such as the following. First, ask yourself gifts. What specific gifts do I have? It could be spiritual gifts, could be natural talents, or resources are. What resources do you currently possess? Financial resources, network resources, material resources, like if you have a house, if you have a car, if you have a boat. Some of you guys have a boat, right? (laughs) Opportunities. Oh, what opportunities have you been given that could be used to benefit others? Your educational opportunities, your work opportunities, random opportunities that you've been given, like you won the lottery. What could I do with this? unique opportunity to serve the body of christ wisdom what experiences good or bad in life have i gone through to where i can now use these things where i've learned from wisdom that i could help others i know how to fix a flat tire i've been to jail and i know what i need to help others with when they go through something like that you uniqueness how are you uniquely wired in your personality your temperament your love language your myers-briggs your enneagram 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 i don't know how to pronounce it that makes you uniquely suited to help out a certain type of person or situation. What are your heart motives? P, passion. What specific issues or things are you excited about? Even if you're not a person who's naturally talented or have a proclivity towards it. Maybe you're passionate about music, but you can't sing. But you love it. Maybe you love children, but for some reason children don't love you. (laughs) But you have a passion for it. It's sincere. Hey, you notice it says grow up? Huh? G-R-O-W. Is that coincidence? Wow. No, it's not. Right? Three things. Not God. You've received mercy. Be teachable to the word of God. You have a unique place to contribute. If you think about these three reasons, and I finish with this, these things make a lot of sense. You know why? Specifically in the Christian context. Because these are all found in the one whom we are called to imitate, Jesus Christ, right? Consider what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to take to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. Here Paul identifies the characteristics that we are to have in our community with one another. Follow the model of Jesus. Number one, he is God, but he doesn't have a God complex. He doesn't act like he's superior than you, even though he is. Right? He doesn't talk down to you, even though he could. Right? Number two, he took on the form of a slave. Very teachable. Right? To where even the book of Hebrews says that he learned wisdom and maturity. Number three, he offered a unique contribution that only he could do, right? 
And it wasn't to be a threat to you. It was to be a blessing to you. And by the way, it came at great cost to him, humiliation and suffering. Ah, these three reasons are uniquely situated in the Christian community. And what I mean by that is we have a justification as to why these three reasons are part of our community and hence why we are inclusive. I am not saying that there aren't communities out there that might have similar, functionally similar three reasons. But I'll tell you what they don't have. They don't have justification to why those reasons exist. We do. So here's the question. Do you want to be part of a true inclusive community? I hope so. But do you want to be part of a community that is justified in the way it defines inclusivism rather than just simply being a hypocrite about it, saying that we are, but we have no justification for why we make those reasons our reasons? If your answer is yes, welcome to the church. Welcome to this family. And now let's get to work and be a blessing to each other and to those around us. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to truly live out this calling of being an inclusive community. Father, in this day and age, it seems like everyone has varying definitions of what it means to be inclusive. But Lord, I pray that in today's message, that as we come to understand how you have defined inclusivism, that not only would we live it out, but we would live it out with conviction, knowing that the kind of inclusive call that you command us to live out is truly genuine and it is truly justified and warranted because of your son, Jesus Christ, who has modeled for us genuine, inclusive love. We pray, O oh Lord, that as we seek to be a blessing and to make an influence into the people of the lives that you've called us to share in, that we would truly be inclusive, sharing the love of Christ, modeling Christ, so that as people witness, they would come to taste genuine inclusiveness that is truly welcoming to all. Father, help us to live this out. Help us to live it out faithfully. For we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.